You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck. Today I'm joined by Sean Marquis, who's an instructor here in the Defense and Strategic Studies program and an infantry officer in the U.S. Army. Sean, thanks for being here. Thank you, Tim. My pleasure. Can you give us a little bit of background about how you wound up in the Army? Uh, Yeah, so growing up, Tim, I'd always wanted to be in the Army growing up. Went back and forth on branches when I was a lot younger and kind of wanted to be a pilot. Transferred, eventually wanted to be infantry. But yeah, when I was leaving high school, it was sort of a perfect mixture of, hey, how can I do college and army? And I wound up doing ROTC at the University of New Hampshire. While I was there, I got hooked on the idea of being an infantry officer. And Your pipeline after New Hampshire, like a lot of infantry officers, right? Was it right to airborne and ranger school and all of those things or... No, so it was interesting. A um, little bit different in ROTC than it is here at West Point. So I didn't go active until my bullet, well, I wasn't supposed to go active until my bullock date, which was the following January. So when I found that out, went to my professor in military science. I was like, hey, sir, like, can you get me a job? I really don't want to be unemployed for the next, you know, eight, nine months or whatever. He said, well, Sean, take a look. We don't have anything right now, but when the new fiscal year starts in October, we can maybe make you like a you know recruiter's assistant or something like that. So over that summer after graduation, I was a commissioned second lieutenant working the night shift at a grocery store stocking shelves. But yeah, from there, worked at the ROTC detachment for a couple months in the fall before PCSing down to Benning. At Benning, it was, uh, you know, I Bullock followed by Ranger School. I had already knocked out airborne school while I was a cadet, so you know, got to skip out on that one. But interestingly, while I was at iBullock, uh, that's when they give all of us ROTC guys our follow-on assignments. And I was supposed to go to a brigade at 3rd ID down in Savannah, Georgia, and I had found out that they were just getting back from a deployment to Iraq. And I freaked out a little bit because I wanted to deploy as a platoon leader. And I thought that if I went there, there was a good chance that I wouldn't get the opportunity to deploy. Uh, so I was asking around all my friends in the company and the platoon, like, hey, does anybody have an assignment that they don't want? That's a unit that's going to de- going to deploy soon. Um, and luckily enough, Sister Platoon had a guy who he was having a lot of relationship problems and he was worried that he wouldn't be able to make his personal life work out. So um, he wanted the stability of going to a unit that had just gotten back from deployment. 
So we switched, and that ended up sending me to Second Brigade uh, over at Fort Lewis because they were they were on the past chart getting ready to deploy the following April. Was this a striker unit? It was. Yep. So you're a light infantry guy. You show up at a striker unit. What happens from there? Whole lot of train up. So I, I was lucky in that I had my Ranger tab. Uh, the battalion that I went to, they had multiple lieutenants in the S3 section who had been waiting on platoons, but they didn't have their ranger tabs. And so they sort of um, fell down to that next echelon. If you showed up with a ranger tab, you were going to be taking a platoon, if not immediately, then very soon after you got there. So me and another guy who had just shown up both had our ranger tabs, and we kind of got to cut the line a little bit. Um, So I want to say that was around... October, November timeframe that I PCS there. So got there, kind of got settled in a little bit, did a couple small arms ranges. Uh, but the striker vehicle itself was a real, um, real learning curve for me. Just the amount of property that you're going to own as a platoon leader and how to maneuver vehicles in conjunction with the dismounted element was something new that I had never worked with as a cadet or, you know, while I was at Menning. So that, that definitely had a strong learning curve that I didn't fully get a good handle on even until I was deployed. That was still something I was continuing to learn and develop. You mentioned the patch chart. Mm-hmm. Where was your unit slated to go? Uh, Afghanistan. Yep. Um, Kandahar province, Afghanistan. I don't know if we knew anything more than Afghanistan at the time. Even if we had, it wouldn't have meant anything to me because I had very little understanding of that area at the time. How much of a workup did you have between checking in at Fort Lewis to boots on ground in country? So I didn't have much time getting to act tactically as a platoon leader myself. What was fairly beneficial is um, there were teams who had gone forward on PDSS and brought back TTPs from members of the 82nd Airborne who were currently operating in the AO that we were going to be going to. And what we found out was in that area of Kandahar province, um, lots of IEDs all over the place, both for mounted vehicles as well as dismounted IEDs. Uh, And they were in such quantities and so pervasive on the battlefield that how infantry units patrolled had changed pretty drastically. So, you know, you think, hey, in a large open area, you're going to operate spread out, maybe a large wedge, you know, increase your spacing. But we actually kind of went the other way. So we ended out moving to using almost exclusively lines. So we'd move in a line in a file. Um, and we'd have spacing within that file, but we went to a file because everywhere we went, we had somebody with, we called it, it was a mine hound. Uh, it was a metal detector, but also had like a radar component to it to scan the ground to try to find IEDs before people would walk on them. So these guys who went forward brought this TTB back to us. And we actually did an iteration of squad live fires where we practiced moving in this new movement formation and reacting to contact and and, uh, executing through it. Did you have the advantage of having NCOs that had been to Afghanistan before? We did. We had some NCOs uh, in the platoon in the company who had been to Afghanistan before. Unfortunately, I think many of them had been to different parts and different areas of Afghanistan. So the environment that we were in was still fairly different than what most people had experienced. Uh, We did have some guys who I think had been in that AO before, so they might have had a little bit better perspective. But uh, I'd say overall, it was a pretty big shift in understanding for most of us. I mean, even some of the senior NCOs, 
A lot of them had been to Iraq during previous deployments where it was, you know, more urban fighting, very highly kinetic with direct fire type actions, which was less the case where, where we were going. What went through your head as you got off the airplane? Boy, I don't know. That whole, uh, the whole probably first two weeks in country were really just sort of a blur um, of, you know, getting your equipment together, getting it accounted for, signing for new theater-provided equipment, learning the AO, trying to get your hands on maps, intelligence, understanding where you're going, um, putting weapon systems together, testing them before you go out. Uh, but that whole process, so we, f- we flew into Kandahar Airfield. That's where we started off. And there you're living in big, giant, transient tents and just trying to get yourself organized. Uh, and after a couple days there in Kandahar Airfield, we signed for strikers, signed for our extra equipment. And from there, we drove out in, in a company-sized convoy to go out to the battalion's fob where they were staying at. Uh, once we got out to battalion, we were there for a couple more days. You know, doing some AO familiarization, meeting up with some of the units that we were going to rip out with. Uh, and then, you know, from there, a couple days later, moving down into where our company was going to be um, based out of for the next couple months. And where was that? Uh, that was in the main one district of Kandahar province, which if you're following, you know, Route 1, the one major highway in Afghanistan that sort of doesn't ring around the country, you'd be following that southwest out of Kandahar Airport. And it's probably a good three quarters or more of the way to, to Helmand province. Um, but it's in the southern part of Afghanistan, fairly flat, arid country, you know, very different than, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about eastern or northern Afghanistan where there's a lot of mountains and foliage. Here it was more of a you know, desert type environment with a lot of grape rows, grape farms, a couple orchards here or there. But other than that, fairly sparse terrain. What was the situation on the ground there? Uh, so the situation that we were dealing with, it, it wasn't probably the enemy's main focus um, because it was such a rural environment. It was more of an area where the enemy was simply trying to work through in efforts to go get after other areas. So what we were trying to do was to sort of deny that terrain to the enemy to stop them from being able to stage and prepare for operations, say, against Kandahar City or, or other more major areas of the country. Where our company owned, it was the sort of Dagobah village district. Um, and then out to the east of us was the Sharshaka village district. And we had elements that were there in Dagobad. There was other friendly elements that were over in Sharshaka. But there was sort of a seam of probably a little over a mile in between where there was no you know, continuous U.S. or partner force presence that the enemy knew that they could you know, traffic arms go after the populations to use them and and just do all of the support things that they needed to do within that area because there was no presence of, of, you know, U.S. or friendly forces. Was it a priority for your battalion or your company to try to close some of that gap? Yeah, exactly. So when we got there, the 82nd had sort of been expanding the amount of terrain that they were able to exert influence over. And when we occupied it uh, and replaced them, the intent was trying to find ways that we can continue to influence that seam and influence operations throughout the AO. The difficult part is you only have so much manpower. So you can only extend your force so far before you're starting to lose, you know, manning and numbers. How did your company attempt to influence that seam? 
Yeah, so we had two pieces of permanent infrastructure when we first got there. The main one was Cop Dagobad, which is where the company headquarters was based out of. Um, and we had two platoons. The company's third platoon had been cut off to go work for a different battalion during that deployment. So the two platoons, one would be there at Cop Dagobad doing either support role type missions, logistics, uh, or just defense in that AO. And then the other one would go out on patrol to, we called it a patrol base. Doctrinally, it wasn't. It was just a platoon-sized piece of tactical infrastructure uh, that had previously been some Afghan compound that had been deserted. We went out there. Eventually, throughout the deployment, we built it up more and more with camo nets and sandbags, but it was an additional outstation that the platoons rotated through. So you'd go out to that outstation, and then from there, you'd patrol out into neighboring villages to interact with the local population. What was the rotation between Cop Dagobad and this platoon position? Yeah, so when we were going out to the patrol base, generally it was about two days on, two days off depending on circumstances. So, you know, first platoon would go out, they'd be there for a couple days, then they'd come back in to do their refit and support roles, and we would go out and replace them. It would change if you had some sort of planned operation going on while you were out there, or sometimes the people who weren't out there would actually be staging a more major operation from out of Cop Dagobad, so then you'd have a longer rotation out at the, out at the CP. Interestingly, though, so that was... In the beginning of the deployment, that was entirely a dismounted movement. So this patrol base itself was only maybe one and a half to two kilometers away from Dagobad. Um, but it was all dismounted. You sort of skirted up against the Argandab River, which was dry basically the whole time we were there. And some small village clusters that were up against the banks of the Argandab. Um, so we'd walk that dismounted going out there, which made for some interesting... Some interesting walks in and of itself. So at one point, we're trying to increase the security at the patrol base. We decided to bring in 50 cal machine guns that we couldn't, you know, normally we have those mounted on our strikers, but we couldn't bring the strikers out there because there was no roads out to that location. So we decided to carry the 50 cal tripod ammo out there. 2K movement doesn't sound very far, but at heat with all of your equipment and everything else, that was a... Uh, it was a pretty significant event that day. Once you get out there, you've done this two-click movement. You're not done. What is a patrol or, or some of the operations you ran out of this patrol base? What do they look like? So they varied a lot in a day-to-day patrol to patrol. Um, sometimes you just maybe move 500 meters out from the patrol base and engage with the local village cluster. Try to talk to locals, see if they have any stories of what the Taliban's been up to. You know, they might tell you about where some IEDs have been planted. A lot of times we'd hear about people either getting night letters or, you know, the Taliban talking to them about not talking to us because they'd see people talk to us and, you know, they never liked that. To, to something more in-depth and planned where maybe you make a, a further movement into area that we don't visit as often. When you went out to some of those areas that you didn't visit as often, did you run into trouble? Yeah, pretty often. So pretty much... We had sort of like a line around the patrol base where, you know, if we went to the nearest village cluster, it was maybe 300-ish meters away, if that. We could get there and usually not a lot of resistance up to that point. 
But once we were there, that was sort of like the Taliban's line of, we need to harass them now. Uh, they didn't like us infringing on their seam uh, as we left the patrol base. And even at the patrol base, we'd get, you know, sporadic, you know, I think it was really just the Taliban trying to make sure that we knew they didn't like us being there and, and try to keep us clustered into that area. At one point, we we decided that we wanted to plan something that really went a, a bit further and did something a bit more than just the local engagement with the population. And so we decided that we wanted to go after where we thought a cache might be located. We didn't have any hard intelligence in terms of people telling us, hey, there's a cache located here or anything like that. But we knew that there was a larger recoilless rifle in the region because it had shot at both the company and the platoon bases several times. And we knew that, you know, they were keeping that somewhere. They don't just drive around with it because it's too big and it would be too obvious. So we wanted to find where that was as well as, you know, any IED, making stuff, weapons, all this thing. So we wanted to search for it and we looked at the map and we figured, well, they're probably not going to hide it in the house because you know, the partner forces that we worked with, the ANSAF, they could go in and search houses at will. So they wouldn't just keep it somewhere within a house. They wouldn't just leave it out in the open because then it'd be susceptible to being viewed from the air. And there was often Kiowas flying around the region. So doing a map recon, we saw that there was an orchard about a kilometer away from where our patrol base was. And we decided that this orchard would probably be a pretty good place for hiding a cache. You can't really see inside it from the air very well. Um, it's not inside any actual compound, so less likely to get visited by us or other friendly forces. And it was sort of beyond that ring of where engagement with the Taliban would happen. So it wasn't an area where U.S. forces regularly were. So we knew that they would assume it was a fairly secure area. Um, and we decided we wanted to do a patrol out to that location to search it, see if we could uncover anything. But this wasn't something we just did off the cuff from out of the patrol base. We started planning for this and making the request for it while we were still back at Cop Dagobad. So, you know, we, we put together the CONOP and, and submitted to hire, asking for resources and different things like that to you know, make this operation happen. Which went fairly well. So, you know, one of the things that we request is with the huge IED threat, you want experts who can help you deal with that. And earlier in the deployment, we had always had the use of EOD personnel who are very high, highly trained, know how to work with bombs, how to you know defuse them, and then you know, do real forensic analysis to try to do things like maybe full, pull fingerprints or you know, trace materials that are used to try to figure out where this stuff's coming from. Um, but we didn't have EOD for, for this particular operation. We put in the request for assistance, and what we got back was uh, a team of sappers, who I had never worked with before, and they, they were excellent. Loved being able to work with sappers, but uh, that was definitely pretty different in terms of operating with an enabler and just, you know, what their TTPs were versus what we were used to. As you're coming up with this plan, what sort of advice are you getting from your platoon sergeant or some of your squad leaders? Yeah, this was fantastic. So you know, the, the platoon was really strongly bonded. When you spend so much time out in really disparate locations you know, with very little support, it, you really bond a lot as a unit. And the platoon was very close and all the squad leaders were really interested in trying to do something more to get after the Taliban. Um, at this point in the deployment, we had lost one of our soldiers, Specialist Vilmar Galarza. Great person, great human being with you know, a smile that will live with me forever. 
but he had stepped on on a dismounted you know, anti-personnel IED and we lost him and at that point we were looking for operations that we could do to try to you know have greater effect on the Taliban people had taken that hard and we wanted to do something and so you know me and my squad leaders and my NCOs we had we had planned out a couple different operations of what we could do to try to achieve this and the first one had actually been turned down we wanted to start another deeper patrol base further into that enemy seam. But due to personnel limitations, it just wasn't something that we could afford to man full time. So that got axed. Um, and so this was another one that we came up with, with, hey, maybe we can push into this area and try to uncover an enemy cache. And uh, this one got the approval. Uh, but the planning process... I'd say you know, pretty comfortable with like the troop leading procedures, but it was a very collaborative effort, right? So it's not just you sitting alone in your tent or maybe with your platoon sergeant running through all this stuff. Squad leaders would come in and, you know, you're talking through it with them. Hey, what do you guys think about, you know, this location? Do you think that orchard could be something? And, you know, you sort of brainstorm and, hey, what enablers do we need to be able to get out here? What do we think the enemy is going to do when we move to this location? How will they react when we cross that line? So it's very collaborative and, you know, and thank goodness it was because, you know, due to how inexperienced I was and how much I was still learning, their knowledge and expertise was invaluable invaluable to me at that point when you were selling this mission to hire you've lost specialist galarza how did you frame it in such a way that it didn't look like revenge yeah that's a great point i mean i think from the get-go our company's mission was to try to influence more of that seam that the taliban was operating in and so i think just keeping it within that original company mission set of, hey, we want to do more to influence this. And, you know, rather than continuing to just work with local villagers and our, you know, very direct AO, we want to just do something that'll surprise the Taliban. We want to take some initiative rather than just being on the receiving end, try and do something that'll get them off balance. You've gotten the approval. You've got your sappers. What happens? This mission actually kicked off in kind of a funny way. So we start off, it's dismounted patrol out of the patrol base. And like I said, only a couple hundred meters away from the patrol base is where we knew contact was fairly likely. Um, in talking with the local villagers, we had a pretty good idea of where there was an IED belt. You get just on the other side of that first village cluster, and there was some grape rows, a little wadi area, some vegetation, and then a large open field on the far side. So... When we first SP, we took one of our machine gun teams and they sort of got up on the roof and were providing overwatch for, for our initial movement. When we got into that village cluster, we had planned to use APOBs. I forget what the acronym is, but basically it's a backpack mounted Miklik kit. So it's a backpack that shoots out a couple small rockets that brings a line charge out over a piece of terrain. That'll then blow up and anything within that lane of that line charge is now safe to walk in because everything else there has been blown up. But knowing where that likely IED belt was from the locals that we had spoken to, we had planned to use that across a very specific location in some grape rows during the mission. So we get out there, only took a couple minutes, we get to where the grape rows are, we're like, all right, likely IED belt, let's blow a lane through this. So we use the APOBs, they shoot out, and I tell the, the sappers, I'm like, all right, hang on a second, I got to call up to hire. And I call up to my company headquarters and I say, hey, just so you know, we need a RAS, restricted airspace, 
over this location, we're about to use an APOPS. This is where my inexperience really came in. Company comes back on the net and they tell me, hey, restricted airspace, going to be up, just wait about 30 minutes. We'll get back to you. I was like, oh, okay, no problem. Bring the Sappers team leader back over. Hey, Sergeant, check it out. Restricted airspace isn't going to be up for about 30 minutes, so just hold off on the APOBs. You know, don't blow it for about another 30 minutes. We're waiting to hear back from company. And he looks at me wide-eyed and he says, Sir, I don't think you understand. We've got about a minute. Once the rockets launch out carrying the line charge, it takes about two minutes and then it blows. There's nothing more that we do on our end. And so I immediately called back to company and I'm trying to explain to them that the APOBs has already been used. It's about to go off when the explosion hits. And it's a loud explosion that they could definitely hear all the way back at company. And, you know, rather than talking to, you know, the, the radio operators who work back at company, heard my company commander jump on the net and uh, no uncertain terms. He let me know probably had done the wrong thing there, right? So I explained to him, sir, honest mistake, didn't realize that this was just going to go off. I meant to call up a Roz, didn't, just didn't understand. So uh, a bit of a learning point on my end at that one, you know, which in hindsight kind of, you know, You'd think you would know about that ahead of time, just thinking like if rockets go off, why? But I learned from that one, um, pick up our column, start moving through the lane. No sooner do we get through that lane than maybe 10 meters past it, we find wires and disturbed earth and reasonably there's another IED. Again, call up the sappers. Hey guys, looks like we got something else. Can you go take a look at this real quick? And again, in my experience, I'm used to working with EOD. So I'm thinking like, we're going to be sitting here for an hour or two while they investigate this, probably take out a robot and do X, Y, Z trying to uncover this thing, right? No, team leader comes back to me and he's like, hey, sir, yep, Roger, see it, see the wires disturbed earth. We're going to use this little charge to try to blow it in place. I'm like, oh, well, all right, let's do it. Got the Roz thing down that time. Called it up, didn't blow anything until we had the Roz in place. But afterwards, I go back up to the sapper team. I'm like, hey, guys, so, you know, what was it? Was it a pressure plate IED? Was it, you know, a directionally focused charge? You know, what'd you find? We didn't find anything. We just, there were signs of an IED. So we blow it up and then, you know, there's no IED there anymore. Uh, And that sort of like turned on a light bulb for me of like, oh, yeah, sappers, right? They're not trying to do any forensic analysis they're just creating a lane for us to breach through to get into this enemy territory, which from a time perspective, greatly appreciated because, I mean, EOD, thank goodness for the talents that they have, but they have to be much more slow and deliberate with what they're doing for you know, obvious reasons. Once again, pick up the column, start to move forward. We get to the little wadi and the vegetation. Our lead element just starts to cross that when all of a sudden we hear snap, 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 gunfire coming in. So rush up to the front, I'm up there with our first squad, kind of down, looking around, calling up to the machine gun team that was in Overwatch. Nobody really sees anything. So you know, just another time we're halting the column and waiting and trying to figure things out. And we had an idea of what we thought the enemy might have been, but it was just some quick pot shots. Again, probably trying to scare us, keep us out of the area where we knew they didn't want us to be. So at this point, pick up the column, third time start to move forward and finally we get through this open area and we start to get near the orchard and just across from the road there's like a compound with a wall 
And so we went into that little walled off compound and we used that as like our ORP before we move into the orchard to occupy and search it for you know, the enemy cache. So we get in there and on this patrol, in addition to about a section of my soldiers and the and the sappers, we've got an equal number of uh, Afghan Afghan national police with us. And so kind of getting the ORP, kind of we go over the details with them like, hey, look, we're going to get over there. We're going to secure it. We've secured it. We're going to search it, try to find this cache. Depending what we find, we'll, we'll retrograde from there. Everyone's, all right, fine, great, good deal. So we stand up, go to leave the compound. We're pulling security both ways down the road, get into the orchard, secure it, and then we get our teams up, start doing search. So we're looking all over the place. We're using our mine hounds in case anything's buried, uh, but we're not really finding anything. And the whole time the search is going on, we start to see changes in the pattern of life. You know, all of a sudden there's no farmers out in this field where there's always typically farmers. You start to see increased motorcycle traffic, which in that AO at that time, you know, word was like, hey, the Taliban mostly move around on motorcycles. Uh, and then at an intersection a ways away, one of our machine gunners reports up that he's seeing a van stopped, just seeming kind of shady. So, you know, you're kind of getting that like, prickly sensation of like, all right, we know they already know we're here because we've already been fired out a little bit. Now we're seeing like some more signs. So we wrap up the search. We're like, all right, hey, time to go. Like, this is how we're going to pick up. Bring in the squad leaders. Just break it down again. Hey, here's how we're going to gonna move out of here, you know. And it was going to be, I think, first squad would be the last one to break down. First one's in, last one's to break down. And we were going to cross back over into the compound and then exfil the area from there. So we start moving out. The Afghans move out. We're moving out. And the last people in the orchard is a team from first squad. And that's when we take contact. So somewhere in the grape rows in the field in front of the orchard, they start getting shot at. And we're hearing the snaps um, over in the road and over by the compound. So immediately we start trying to react. I'm getting with the Afghan commander, trying to tell him to get his guys back out there to help provide cover for us. My squad leaders, you know, they were great. They didn't need me to tell them what to do. They're already moving their dudes back up to go provide support for first squad. But Sergeant Noble's out there with first squad. He's the first squad leader. And, you know, they're trying to react to the contact themselves. They're returning fire and he's trying to orient his guys on the enemy and give them instructions. And, you know, one story that I think stuck with everybody from this one is, you know, our our saw gunner, Peterson. So he's laying there and he can't see where the enemy's at that was attacking them. So he's laying prone, searching for targets, not engaging. And Sergeant Noble just wants him to engage, start suppressing, you know, suspect enemy positions. So he shouts over to Peterson, hey, Peterson, lay it down, lay it down. But Peterson, and, you know, sort of the fog of war, right? All he hears is Peterson, lay down, Peterson, lay down. And he's thinking to himself, what is Sergeant Noble talking about? I'm already laying prone. What am I supposed to do? Uh, and eventually, I think Sergeant Noble, you know, got it across to him and you know, Peterson suppresses. And yeah, I think... You know, the enemy broke contact fairly quickly. And of Sergeant Noble, uh, you know, he launched a 40 Mike Mike round in their direction. And I think if he didn't get him, probably scared him for sure. So enemy kind of broke contact. We were set up to support. Finally, our guys are able to come back. Um, but we then retrograde out of the compact, out of the compound, and make it back to our patrol base without any additional major incidents. Before Peterson's told to lay it down, you've... I'm assuming have reached back to hire and said, hey, we didn't find anything in this orchard. 
What was their reaction? That's funny. I don't actually remember any major issue there. You know, I think maybe because our intelligence on it was flimsy to begin with, everybody knew there was no certainty behind there being a cache there. It was sort of a, hey, this would make sense to be a place for a cache, so we'll see how it goes. So, I mean, you're right. I'm sure I called it up and said we didn't find anything, but I don't remember any pushback or consternation about, ah, geez, like, search harder or anything like that mm-hmm. was this a i mean was this a typical patrol in maywand at the time pretty close to it to be honest i mean we had more interaction with the enemy on this one just because we had chosen to go farther and, and push more than what we probably typically did but like i said through intelligence and experience we knew that within a couple hundred meters of our patrol base there was an ied belt And it was territory that the enemy was going to contest. So anytime we went on dismounted patrol out past that very local village cluster, you knew that there was going to be some sort of contact with the enemy. Um, At a minimum, they were definitely watching, but there was a pretty high likelihood that they'd try to take some pot shots at you, you know, unleash a couple bursts from machine gun just to do enough to try to disrupt you and let you know that they don't want you going any further. The main TTP that they used at this time is they'd have, you know, maybe a couple guys, you know, taking pot shots or doing some light suppressive fire, just enough to get you to react. And what they wanted you to do was then to react and move to cover and concealment or try to move through choke points where they had IEDs in place. So the intent wasn't that they wanted to ambush you by direct fire. They wanted to make you react with direct fire and then maneuver into the IEDs that they had in place. Knowing that you were going to take contact of a harassing nature every time, but knowing that there are also lethal consequences to this every now and then, how did you keep your soldiers motivated to go out on patrols like this that ultimately wound up somewhat fruitless? So motivation at that time in Afghanistan, it it could be tough because we knew generally what we were fighting for, right? We wanted to secure Afghanistan for the people of Afghanistan against the Taliban. But the realities on the ground were we didn't have the force size and enough presence to be able to completely own that scene where the Taliban was. So it was difficult to try to nail down, you know, this is the thing that we're going to achieve here. I wasn't very good as a young platoon leader at understanding how to do the little things to try to take care of your platoon and maintain motivation. I'll never forget something as simple as like, food can be a motivator during times when you're in a real austere environment and you have so few creature comforts. Um, So, you know, there'd be little things like, hey, there's, you know, steaks back at the cop. Can we try to bring those out? And I was always kind of like, hey, don't bother me with talk about like food and how we're doing that sort of stuff. Like we've got MREs at the end of the day. If you want something else like, you know, squad leaders, platoon sergeant, go try to figure it out. But I came to realize over time that that was a real shortcoming on my own, you know, my own leadership style was you need to care about the individual and those creature comforts because, you know, even though they don't have the outsized impact of what kit you're bringing on patrol or what rehearsals you've done that day, it makes sure that everyone understands that you care about them and how they're doing and that you can try to bring some, you know, piece of happiness into their day. So there was little challenges like that throughout. There were just Learning experiences. Mm-hmm. Did you ever find the recoilless rifle? Never found it. No. Might even still be out there. Who knows? 
Sean, thanks for coming on The Spear today and talking about your experiences as a platoon leader in strikers and as a platoon leader in an interesting and restive proce- uh, province in Afghanistan. Hey, Tim, thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure to get to share my story. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.